The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, well, I suppose, brethren and sisters, you can remember back to our last class, and I don't suppose anybody wants to own up to that, because you probably get accused of being an elephant, because I suppose it's so long ago, and they say that they've got the greatest memory of all animals. But it was some time ago, and we were together. But if you can remember back on that occasion, brethren and sisters, we left our Lord Jesus Christ in that synagogue at Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Now, I want you to turn to that record, because it's highly interesting, in that fourth chapter of Luke, we have the occasion when our Lord was in that synagogue at Nazareth and he left that city, I believe, in great wrath because of the unbelief that he found in his own town. And we read in the 28th verse of, Matthew, of Luke chapter 4, And all that were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill, whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. And if you remember back, brethren and sisters, it was in that synagogue that he quoted to them the words of Isaiah 61, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. And you remember that those words we, we commented upon, brethren and sisters, taken from Isaiah 61, are based upon the Day of Atonement. Because the verse goes on to say, of course, in Isaiah, and the day of vengeance of our God. And there was a day of vengeance, brethren and sisters, or atonement, which heralded a year of jubilee. That's what Isaiah 61 is talking about. And although the Lord was not there to preach the day of God's vengeance, he was there nonetheless, brethren and sisters, as a fulfilment of the great atonement for all men. And it's highly significant, I believe the height of significance, that when he finished that discourse in that synagogue that they should take him to the brow of a hill to push him over that hill that they might kill him because that is exactly what the Jews did by their tradition to the scapegoat when they misunderstood the very purpose of that law. Now I want you to note the significance of that. This is not of small significance. Because from this moment onwards, brethren and sisters, this record is going to turn the corner. This is no small significance. Here are the Jews about to do with him what they did mistakenly to the scapegoat of the law of Moses. Undoubtedly, of course, that climatic sacrifice of the law in which all the other sacrifices converged once a year. And here he is in fulfilment, the great antitype of those sacrifices, and they treated him in exactly the same fashion as they treated that scapegoat because they misunderstood the import of the scapegoat. It was meant to live, not to die. And they took it out on the brow of the hill, and according to their traditions, they were to drive it over the cliff and the man was to come back to the camp and announce to all the people that the scapegoat was dead, they could breathe a sigh of relief. Because they thought that all his sins were heaped upon that goat, and until it was destroyed out of sight and mind, they were in dire danger of being, of course, obliterated by God Almighty. And they lived in fear while that goat lived. Whereas the law of Moses, brethren and sisters, was trying to teach them that the way to eternal life was not merely through death, but through life itself. The life of God as manifested in his Son, that by his life we are saved. And having missed that point, they treated him in exactly the same manner as they treated that scapegoat. Now you think of the significance of this, from that moment onwards, the record changes. And Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the Acts of the Apostles all tell us that from this very point, the, the, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ took a different tack entirely. The Jews had rejected him in the terms of the scapegoat. He now left Nazareth, we read, and where did he go? He went and he dwelt, we read, in Capernaum, in verse 31 of this chapter. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. 
So we have it on the transparency here, brethren and sisters. Now, at this moment, the Lord changed his headquarters, as it were. He came down from Judea, of course. You remember, he came back from the city of Judea, from the city of Jerusalem, rather, through Judea and Samaria, having spoken to the woman of Samaria, and then he came to Nazareth. And, of course, there he spoke in the synagogue there. Of course, he went to Cana first, but he didn't know that. But he came to Nazareth, went up to Cana, came back to Nazareth, and there he spoke in that synagogue, and then he left there and made his way over to the city of Capernaum, right up here on the northwestern shore of the Lake of Galilee. Now, that's as far as we're going to go tonight. We want to talk about that region. You know why? Because the record does. There is a studied attempt in this record to tell us to pause and consider the import of that move. I want to show you that. In Mark chapter 1, brethren and sisters, I'll just show you two references. You've seen them before. I want you to look at them again. There's a studied attempt to tell us there's something different. In Mark chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15, we read these words. Now listen carefully, and I'll read you the other words in a minute, and you'll see the comparison. Now after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now note, brethren and sisters, that this was some time after the public ministry of our Lord commenced on the banks of the Jordan. But now he's saying, the time is fulfilled, the time is at hand that the, the kingdom of God should be preached. Believe the gospel. It was after the, 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 the occasion when John was put into prison, he came into Galilee preaching that gospel. Now you compare that with Acts chapter 10. You listen carefully to these words, and you'll see here an echo of Mark's words. And in John chapter 10, when Peter is talking to Cornelius, the Gentile convert, we read in verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. So both Mark and Peter, as well as Matthew and Luke and John, all tell us so when the Lord left that place at Nazareth there and went over to Capernaum, there was a great change. Something began. Something was fulfilled and something began. And it was all after that John was put into prison. Now, brethren and sisters, John was the last of the prophets. The Lord himself being witness. The law and the prophets were until John. That's the end of an epoch. The law and the prophets were until John. But now, said the Lord, the kingdom of God is preached and every man is pressing into it. And there was a dynamic lift to the Lord's ministry, brethren and sisters, upon hearing that John had been into prison. Not that the Lord was glad about that. But there was the signal to our Lord. And now the time came to propound that gospel in a new city, in a new environment, as it were, with a new vitality, and something began. And it's remarkable when you consider the prophecy that went, went on this particular matter. In the ninth chapter of Matthew, brethren and sisters, we learn that when he came to Capernaum, such was the way in which he frequented that place that it was known as his own city. We read this in the ninth chapter of Matthew. We read, he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. His own city. The city of Capernaum up here. Literally meaning the city of Nahum. It's the city of the prophet's name. The city of Nahum. But when you translate Nahum's name, it means the city of comfort. And the city of comfort became the Lord's own city. 
And you know, brothers and sisters, it is not without significance also that having turned his back on the Jews here who treated him like the scapegoat, which they shouldn't have done, and gone there, that it's Peter that should make the point of the first Gentile convert that this word, you know, what word, that began there. And there was something about that work there, brothers and sisters, that had a relevance to that Gentile who was now being called. We say that our Lord never went to the Gentiles, but I suppose in the official sense he didn't. But I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, there would have been scores of them who would have heard him, heard him up in that region. In the second chapter of Mark, <clears throat> Matthew having called it his own city, Mark calls it his home. And we read in the second chapter of Mark here concerning this move to Capernaum that after he'd been there for some time we, we read in the second chapter of Mark and at verse 1 and again he entered into Capernaum after some days and it was a noise abroad that he was in the house. But in the Greek it reads it was noise abroad that he was home. The Lord had come home and here was the place which the Lord made home. And you know, brethren and sisters, it's remarkable how much of our Lord's ministry was contained in that small region around there. As a matter of fact, little or nothing is heard of our Lord below Tiberias. Almost nothing about that area there. But Parapact in here was much of our Lord's work and certainly a lot of his miracles. Now what was it about that region? What is this new thing? What's this beginning? Well, you take Matthew. Coming back to Matthew chapter 4, which was read in our hearing this evening, brethren and sisters, what's Matthew say? It's Matthew alone that makes this point about this move to Capernaum. And notice how he puts it. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. That's exactly what Mark said. That's exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 10. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seashore in the coasts of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 9. But I want you to notice this. It says, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, as if Matthew was almost telling us that as far as this ministry of our Lord was concerned, although Nazareth was well and truly in the region of Galilee, it was not to Nazareth that he was going in effect. He came into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came to Capernaum. And then Matthew says that the words of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. You see, brethren and sisters, such was the place of Nazareth, certainly in the centre of Galilee, but such was our Lord's life there, having been brought up in that town, where people grew so familiar with him. Is not this Joseph's son? But because of that very familiarity, they could not see him as God's son. But the Lord walked out of that place, almost in scorn, and went and made another area his home. And there he came and dwelt at Capernaum. And in that, Matthew sees the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 9. And that's where we want to go now. And he quotes these words, brethren and sisters, in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. He makes a little change to them, actually. And reading in the ninth chapter of Isaiah concerning this very region, we read these words. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be as such was in her vexations. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has light shined. Now what the prophet is talking about, brethren and sisters, is a little region of the country here in Galilee. He's talking about the region here in Galilee. And what he's saying is this, that that district had a history of tragic misfortune. Tragic misfortune that dogged it down 
through the years. So by the time you got to the Lord's life, it was an area which was considered to be out of bounds for any decent, respectable citizens. And if in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the people walked in darkness, when Matthew quoted those words, he people he said, the people who sat in darkness. And he used the expression twice. So whereas people dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, Matthew says they sat in the land of the shadow of death. And life, spiritual life had come all but to a stop in that place because of the tragic misfortunes that had rolled over that area and that had made it such a district that, as I say, no decent, respectable citizen would ever put his nose there for fear of losing his reputation. A yet a more glorious era, ge- geographically, brothers and sisters, would be hard to imagine. It wasn't as if the area could not produce. It wasn't as if it didn't have a grandeur scenically. All that it was exhilarating to the health, it was all that. But it had such a history of tragic misfortune that dubbed it down through the centuries that by the time the Lord Jesus Christ had got there, it was like on the, on the surface of the globe as if there was one little patch of supreme blackness where people sat in darkness. And it's there that our Lord chose to move and soon as he did, Matthew saw it triggered off that prophecy. Now let me read that prophecy to you from another version. Partway through verse 1, it reads like this. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he shall make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them hath light shined. And what that prophecy is telling us, brethren and sisters, that this little territory, which through, I believe, providential events, suffered so tragically that made it so pitifully dark, would in the latter days be honoured by the presence of Messiah. And you know, it's quite remarkable, as I've told you before, that the Lord's ministry only went around the top of that lake. Scarcely ever do we hear about him below it. But much of our Lord's life, activity and preaching, figured in the top of that lake, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The reason it calls it that is this. I want to show you these two transparencies. Here's a transparency of the Divisions of the tribe. And you will note there, there's your region of Galilee. You keep that in your mind's eye as it's in relation to that lake. You'll see why the prophet calls it the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Because there are those two tribes. And they, of course, they joined their borders here and they took up that area which Matthew is talking about. And that's who the prophet is talking about. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And you see, brothers and sisters, much misfortune came upon those nations because Naphtali, joined with Zebulun as it was, formed the northern border of the land. They took the brunt of all the northern invaders. And right from early history, those two tribes were in trouble. In Judges chapter 5, for example, and our brother Jim is in Judges, I understand, at the moment. But in Judges chapter 5 here, right far back as the period of the Judges, those two tribes were already in trouble. That district had already come into dishonour and disfavour. And here we have the invasion of Sisera. Now Sisera, if you'll follow this map here, Sisera came from a border district along here, and he came down with his army of chariots around the corner of Jezreel and he came down the plain of Jezreel to front, of course, the forces of Israel under Barak and Deborah. And it was those two tribes who were in the forefront of his advance. And so in the fifth chapter of Judges, in the Song of Deborah, she writes poetically about the various fortunes of the tribes. Some ran away. Reuben over here, he said, I couldn't care less what happens up there. I'm not affected by that. Asher, he got in the boat and went out to sea. 
he was up in the waves and he said, I don't care about Sisera, but these two tribes couldn't get out of the way. And they were right in the way of that man's advance. And so we read in verse 18 of Judges chapter 5, Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeopardized their lives under the death in the high places of the field. They were right out here. Here was the plain. They had to get up onto the heights of Galilee up here. And there in the high places of the field, still open, Lower Galilee, still very much open to the invasion of Sisera. They fought there, they fought brothers and sisters in jeopardy of their lives and right with their early history, Zebulun and Naphtali had to learn to stand up and fight for themselves because nobody else did. And the rest of Israel in the main ran away from them and hid their back while their brethren took a hammering from the enemy. Had it not been, of course, with divine intervention in the, in the person of Barak and Deborah, those two tribes would have been decimated. But they were saved. But history was not kind to them, brethren and sisters. In the second of Kings, chapter 15, much later in the history, history was never kind to that region. And the time came when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. Coming in, of course, from over in the on the northeast over here, the Assyrians came down to attack the, ten, the, the tribes of Israel to the north. Judah, of course, down here was insulated from all that for a while, while the rest of the tribes, of course, had a front up with the Assyrians. And who, who got taken first? Of course, these people did. So we read in the first, second of Kings chapter 15 and verse 29, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took Ijon and Abelbeth Maacah and Genoa and Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. And so Naphtali's gone. Before any of the other tribes, along with Manasseh, Naphtali went. First one to feel the brunt of the Assyrians. And from that time onwards, of course, the district became depopulated of Jews and more and more populated by Gentiles until it got to such a state that the few Jews who were left there lived in utter desolation with no hope of the future. And that's the picture painted by Isaiah 8. At the end of that chapter, all but one that we've just read from, the last few words of Isaiah 8, brothers and sisters, paint a picture of utter desolation in the land of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. We read in verse 21 of Isaiah 8, And they shall pass through it, hardly beasted and hungry. And it shall come to pass, when they shall be hungry, that they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness and dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And in those last two verses of Isaiah 8, you have a pathetic picture of a people that was slack with God's law. They hadn't gone to the law and testimony. They'd gone to the wizards that peep and mutter. They hadn't listened to God's word. They suffered because of it. And especially these two tribes here, which were in the center of Galilee, took the full force and the brunt of the Gentile invasions. The land became depopulated of Jews and populated of Gentiles and the few Jews that were there went about with their head down looking to the earth, cursing their God, looking to the heavens. And if they looked to the earth, darkness. If they looked to the heavens, anguish. So the whole region, brethren and sisters, had a brooding over it of anguish and darkness. The prophet says, in the former time it was like that. But it's going to change. In the latter time, they're going to have something different. The people who walked in darkness are going to see a great light. And that's why I believe all those gospel writers, along with the Acts of the Apostles, make that point, brethren and sisters, about that change of venue of our Lord as he went from Nazareth to Galilee. That's why they make that point. And the Lord walked into that district which had lived through tragic misfortune. And you know, we're going to see something geographically tonight that really is very personal to all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, appeals to people whose lives have been tragic. Maybe not tragic 
in the ordinary sense of that word. For people who have been dissatisfied with their lot, who see life as darkness with no way out, whose hopes and aspirations are such that there's nowhere else to look but to God and to his son. So wherever they look in the world, they see anguish and darkness and frustration and bitterness. And we're going to see in this geographical lesson tonight, brothers and sisters, something very personal to you and I. I'm, I was absolutely moved. I know all this. I've been through it before. But I, when I went through it this week, I was really moved to, to feel this and to create in my mind a word picture of the district into which our Lord walked to commence that marvellous work of spreading that light among people who sat in darkness. I want to talk about that region and its people. By the time we get back next time, God willing, perhaps we'll have a better appreciation of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he came to do among men. Galilee. The word means the ring. Nothing very special about that, brothers and sisters, because it's a term, really, which is quite often used in the Old Testament. It's not always translated Galilee. It's sometimes used as translated by the word border, or coasts, or region, because that's what it means. It means a region. And Galilee has always got the definite article, the ring. So it wasn't just a region, it was the region. And although, of course, it was used of other regions, Ezekiel uses it of the east, east of the of the of the uh, sea of, of the Dead Sea. He uses the term of that region. Joshua uses it. Joel uses it of other regions other than Galilee. But it became peculiarly known as the region, the region. And there is in the New Testament a carryover of that expression. Where a similar Greek word, not a similar to the Hebrew, but in a similar in meaning, you very often read in the New Testament of the country that was around about Jordan. Or the, or the people come from around about Galilee. Or around about here, or around about there. And the same idea was conveyed of a region. But this one was the region. And it was known for that, for that, in that particular way, brothers and sisters, because of what went on there, who was there, and what sort of a region it was. So we might talk about the district of Enfield, or the district of Prospect, or some other district, but over there is the district. Got no particular name, but everybody knows what you mean when you're talking about the district. You don't say, what district? You know. They're talking about Galilee. And if someone was ignorant enough, as to inquire what district they tell you. The district of the nations. Galilee of the nations. That's what it was, brothers and sisters. Now that district, its southern border, was the southern edge of the valley of Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is here. Its northern border was up here by the river Leondes, where there was a great gorge which cut it off from Lebanon, 50 odd miles from there to there, here to Victor Harbour. Its eastern border was the coast of the Phoenicians, about there. Didn't go to the sea. The territory of Asher was over here, but the Phoenicians ruled up to about there, and its eastern border was about there. Rather, its western border, I'm sorry. And its eastern border was the River Jordan and the lake itself. And that was Galilee, about 50 miles from there to the top, and about 30 odd or 35 miles across that way. Not a very big region, brethren and sisters, but called Galilee of the nations. And as I, as I said, one misfortune after another overtook that region. In the first of Kings chapter 9, the stigma of that place was heightened by this incident. Solomon was building his temple he needed help, especially in the skills of timber and, and of masonry. So he, he, of course, solicited the aid of Hiram, king of Tyre. We read in the first of Kings chapter 9, in verse 10, 
And it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of Yahweh and the king's house. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold, according to all his desire. But then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee, in the region. And Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. And he said, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Cable unto this day. And the margin says, he called them dirty. And you know, brethren and sisters, once again, that area was stigmatized by a Gentile king given 20 cities there. And over he comes and he says, what? What are these? And he called them dirty. That was the region. In the former times, says the prophet, Yahweh had brought that region into contempt. And he had. There's proof of that. There's just one proof of that. Now from the time for that, the Assyrian invasion, and even before that, brothers and sisters, because of its very location in the globe, Galilee became extremely heavily populated with mixed races. We'll have a little bit more to say about that later on. More and more people came to live there from more and more nations. To say that it was cosmopolitan would be an understatement. Some of our brethren, in fact, from New Zealand, say you can go through the streets of Auckland. You see every hue and colour that's possible among nationalities almost in the streets of Auckland at night. Well, Galilee was all like that. For 50 miles north and south and 30 miles east and west, all like that, it was cosmopolitan and became, of course, Galilee, the ring of nations, it was called. And that continued, brothers and sisters, right down for centuries until about a hundred years before our Lord's life. Now you think of this. You think of the providence of God. The land that he had formerly brought into contempt, but in the latter days, the people that walked in darkness were going to see a great light. How could that happen? Well, in about the year B.C. 104, just a hundred years before our Lord came into the world, Galilee came under the domination of the Maccabees. Came under the domination of the Maccabees. Now what did they do? Well, the Maccabees, of course, were the Israelites from the tribe of Levi. Fierce, independent men they were. And they threw off the yoke of the Syrian, not the Assyrian, but the Syrian, and captured a lot of cities and fortified them and controlled the land. Remarkably they did that. And they got themselves into Galilee and they took control of Galilee just a hundred years before our Lord came. And what did they do? They forced the people of Galilee back to the law. That is the Jews that were there. And the few Jews that were there, they forced them back to the law and such was the strength of the Maccabean kingdom at that time that the Jews became supreme in Galilee once more after centuries of history. And you know what they called it from then on? They simply called it the Galilee. And from that moment onwards, it was never referred to again as the Galilee of the nations. It was just simply called the Galilee. They didn't drop the article. It was still the region, but they dropped off the words of the nations. And you know, brethren and sisters, it's interesting. In all but two places in the New Testament where the word Galilee appears, it has the definite article, the Galilee. You go to Israel today and talk about that region, and the Jews, of course, pronounce it a little bit differently, but they talk about the Galil. The Galil as they pronounce it in English, the Galil, the Galilee. It's still the region. But now, it's no longer the region of the nations. Israel are once more in the ascendancy, and that only happened a hundred years before our Lord Jesus Christ came. Remarkably in the province of God, there was the setting for our Lord's ministry in that place. Let's talk a bit about Galilee. You know, brothers and sisters, it's a remarkable place. You, you can imagine. You see, you'll soon understand why it is our Lord came here. See yourself in this situation. Look at it geographically. 
Galilee has four distinct regions. There's a reason I'm going to tell you this. Has four distinct regions. Of course, the plain of Jezreel, quite a, a, a phenomenon in itself, like an overgrown football oval. Running up from the, here, the, the, uh, nearly down to the Jordan Valley, right up through to the, up to the, the, the Bay of Piper up here, is the Valley of Jezreel. Twenty odd mile long, and something like twelve miles wide at its widest point. Huge, lovely, lush plain. That was the southern region. Then you went up here, and you came to Nazareth, uh, we are here, which perched just on top of the escarpment which dropped to the valley. And from there onwards, up into here was known as Lower Galilee. And what you found there, brothers and sisters, was parallel ranges of mountains running east and west like this. And between them, valleys of various widths, giving free and easy access from sea to sea in Lower Galilee. Called Lower Galilee because nothing in that region towered any higher than about 1,850 feet. And there were on top of those, of those low hills there, long plateaus. Open and wide in Lower Galilee. And then of course Upper Galilee, the plateaus continued up here in steps. But now, instead of the mountains going in parallel lines, there was a ring of mountains around those plateaus in Upper Galilee, and hence its name also meaning the ring, because the mountains there do run in circular form, whereas here they run in parallel strata. And the other notable district, of course, was the Sea of Galilee itself. So different from the rest. Because you see, brethren and sisters, I don't know if this transfer is going to be any good, but the point about the Sea of Galilee itself was the fact that it lay like a basin in the region, so that here at the base, at the southern end of the lake, is 680 feet below sea level. Below sea level. And you remember that when we spoke about the other regions of Galilee, that you've got in, in, in these regions here, you've got, you've got the Valley of Jezreel, of course, but then you've got the region here of nothing over 1,850 feet high above sea level, up here, three and, three and 4,000 feet above sea level, and everything converges and plunges to the 680 feet below lake, which forms the central part, or rather the eastern section, of Galilee. And you know, brothers and sisters, when you moved out of Judea into that region, how different was it? How different was it? Look at the difference in Judea and Galilee. Judea was perched on top of the bare hills of Judea. It offered no strategic advantage to an enemy and nothing of economic value. No roads led in and out of Judea. All roads went in and out of Galilee. In Judea, the deserts came right up at the gate of the city. But in Galilee, there was the lush, fertile plains. There were the fruitful lower slopes of Galilee. And there were, of course, the heights of Upper Galilee which brought down the moisture from heaven and provided an inexhaustible supply of water. And if the Judea, brethren and sisters, was somber and spoke of austerity and somberness, Galilee was free and exhilarating. Here in Galilee was sunshine, openness, fresh breezes, clear, beautiful water, a magnificent expanse to live in, and Moses summed it up in one grand expression, or rather Jacob did, in one grand expression when he said this, Naphtali is a hind let loose. And nothing in the world could convey better than that, than Galilee. A young deer with a lactrified muscle, full of vitality, held in check, and then let go. And that's Galilee, brothers and sisters, free and exhilarated. Healthy, strong, vibrant. That was all that Galilee was about. And down in Judea, the district was so different. All the austerity and the somberness of the Galileans, which was so different than the region of Galilee itself, or the, of the Judeans, I should say, which was so different than the Galileans. Now there's something else about that region. Because of those factors that I've mentioned, brethren and sisters, it was heavily populated. Now you picture our Lord walking into this region, knowing that this is the region above all others that God had chosen for him to plant the gospel seed. Oh yes, he'd been to Judea 
and they treated him with utmost contempt and scorn. He was to finish in Judea, brethren and sisters. There was going to be the centre of his universal kingdom. But for the moment, Galilee is home, his own city, as it were. And this is the district which his father wants him to work in. In that area, 50 by 30, and you've got to see if you can make some concept that in your own mind, from here to Adelaide perhaps, and from the coast just past the hills, the hills of Adelaide perhaps, so that, that would be about the comparable district. Josephus, the contemporary historian, says that in that region, brethren and sisters, there dwelt three million people. Absorb that. Other contemporary, other historians, rather, maybe not contemporary like he was, but other historians say in their researches that that estimate was conservative. That was a conservative estimate. Three million people thronging that district. And the whole of those people, all of those people, brothers and sisters, cosmopolitan in, in, in character. And you get some idea that in the gospel records, when the Lord is in that region, he couldn't move, it says in some places, because of the press. People letting down people through the roof to get him at the Lord's feet because the people were packed for yards outside in the street. People coming from all over the place, bringing their sticks. And the clamour and the noise of Galilee can almost be heard in that record as the Lord will be rubbing shoulders almost with people as he pushed his way through the vast crowds which thronged him in Galilee. And what sort of people were they? They were vastly different than the Judeans, brethren and sisters. They were gallant people, passionate people, heroic people. They were not like the Judeans who were more sober more serious and sombre. And as one writer has said, if the Judeans were for law, the Galileans were for hope. And into that region the Lord came, what? Preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see what he was saying? The time is fulfilled. After that John was put into prison, he came into Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of all the spirits that ever lived that looked for that, brethren and sisters, they were in Galilee. And all but one of his twelve disciples came out of that region. That's remarkable in itself. Who was it that when Hezekiah sent letters into the ten tribes of Israel, inviting them to his Passover, when all Israel walked in the shadow of death, who was it that responded to Hezekiah's invitation but the Galileans? There was something about that region, about that race up there that produced that sort of people, brothers and sisters. They were, as I say, a gallant and heroic people. And in the Roman wars, which shook that land soon after our Lord's departure to his father's right hand, in the Roman wars, it was Galilee that supplied one zealot after another to front those Romans up when the Judeans shrank back in fear. It was Galilee that produced that sort of spirit. And there they were, brethren and sisters. Now, Isaiah says, by the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. Have a look at that. That's a very rough diagram of what the archaeologists and the historians have been able to put together about the region of Galilee, as the prophet calls it, by the way of the sea. Now here, of course, is that little region of Galilee just here, in there. But they say that in those days, and still to a very large degree, some of the great arterial roads of the world converge in Galilee because they hook up here with the sea traders, the Phoenicians and the Tyrians, who were famous on the sea and almost had the sea as a monopoly to themselves in those days. So that any trade going out of the west here had almost to go through Tyre and the cities of Phoenicia along the coast. And so all nations converged on there that they might come to Galilee join up with the traders who from them would go all over the world to take their wares and to bring them back to that centre. So you had the road to Rome, the road to Syria and further on to the far east to Assyria and the countries beyond. The great highway which went down the, the long the defile of Jezreel over the river Jordan and then went across the great barren plateau of Arabia to bring back all the exotic goods from over that region. And of course the highway out of Egypt to Assyria 
was there, brethren and sisters. The great highway which ran right through the land and joined up north and south and made the world a complex place as those roads did. And you know something? That road between the coast of Phoenicia there and to Damascus, just over here, past the Sea of Galilee, was called by the Romans via Maris, the way of the sea. And you know why they called it that? Would you say because the road led to the sea? No, but because they say for centuries it was called the way of the sea. And because people recognised that there was the great crossroads, as it were, of all the commerce of the nation. And as we've said before, brethren and sisters, Judea had roads leading to nowhere and coming in from nowhere. Galilee had roads leading everywhere and going everywhere. An incredible place, a boiling cauldron of humanity it was, of all nations. And you know, brothers and sisters, in that region was the birthplace of many of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the parables found their roots in the, the commerce and the industry and the people and the roads which led in and out of Galilee. In that place, the Lord would have talked about the parable of a king who went off to Rome to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And all those grand men, the procurators and the tetrarchs and all the other titles that they had, when they were lifted up a rung in the, in the social and the religious and political and military world of Rome, they made their way back to the emperor to get their crown and came back again. The king who went away into a kingdom to, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That road would have, put, would have been the birthplace of a parable like that. The merchantman travelling a great distance for the costly pearls. He would have come from Arabia in the mind of our Lord. He would have seen them as a boy, brethren and sisters. And sitting on the lip, the lip of the escarpment, which was just a mile or so from his home, with his feet hanging over the edge as a small boy, he would have looked down over the plain of Jezreel and he would have seen them coming, make their way up the valley of Jezreel with all their camels strung together and all the exotic goods braced over the camels and all the goodly pearls and the spices and the anointments and all coming in from Arabia. And that would have given birth to that parable. The prodigal son who went into a far country to waste his living and just along the way of the sea, a broad road, brethren and sisters, a beautiful road, a paved road. The Romans paved it. That's what they call it, the Via Maris, the road of the sea. And they paved that there, and that led to the Phoenician coast, to the Hindley Street, the King's Cross of the world. And the prodigal staff could have easily been hundreds and thousands of Jews who from time to time, leaving the austerity of their religion, were attracted by the gaudy tinsel of the Phoenicians and the Tyrians. And our Lord would have seen that happen time and time again, coming back, of course, scum of all their belongings, slinking back with all the disgrace, back home to find a morsel of bread. And the Lord would have seen that day after day in the place where he is. And the householder who went away and it came back unexpectedly at night, there'd be people coming and going and coming and going 24 hours of the day in Galilee. It was a remarkable region, brothers and sisters, a remarkable region. And in that region, of course, our Lord was going to preach that marvellous gospel. There he was going to find all the people that he was looking for. And the lake itself, what about the lake itself? How often has our Lord seen on that lake, brothers and sisters? What a history it has. And what was it like in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's 13 odd miles from north to south. And at its widest point, it's about 8 miles across. That's a sizable piece of water in the middle of the land like that. But you see, because it was like this, as I showed you on this transparency, because it was down in the basin, as it were, 680 feet below sea level, it had an almost tropical climate. It, it embroiled in tropical heat. But because also, brothers and sisters, it had mountains on the west here, and to the north, and to the east, much higher, some 
drinking up, in the case of Herman, 9,000 feet above sea level, the cold air sailed over the top of Galilee while it left this cauldron, as it were, soaking in that sunshine and that tropical heat and men came down to that basin to live in that region. But every now and then, of course, through the vagaries of nature, that cold air would get sucked into that vortex and down it would come and would stir up Galilean boiling storms. And that was just like the Galilean spirit. Free and open. Settling down where they could. But stirred into violent agitation by the least little thing. That was the Galileans. The lake was spoke of its people. And around that lake, brethren and sisters, our Lord moved. On that lake he moved. And it was there he told his disciples, I will make you fishes of men. And you've only got to see them on that lake. Oh, look, you've only got to see them out there. You know, it's fairly well populated now. But going back, brothers and sisters, not long ago, it was virtually deserted up there before Jewish settlements came. The malarial swamps of the Hula, further north of the Lake of Galilee, were of course notorious for the illness that it caused and so on. The, the marshlands stopped progress there and the area got denuded of its inhabitants. But let's look at it from the eyes of the, in the days when our Lord came. Just let's see it in the eyes of the historian. And look at that lake. And as our Lord sat in that boat and he says, I will make you fishes of men. And you know, brothers and sisters, that lake teemed with fish and that shore teemed with men. It was packed around that shore. Look, I've tried to show it on here with a few dots. But they say that there were nine villages or cities, they called them. Nine cities around that lake. And according to the authenticated records, brethren and sisters, they say that not one of those cities had less than 15,000 people in them. You work that out. 130 odd thousand people around that little lake. I will make you fishes of men. You think about that. Why I understand is about 20,000 people, the second biggest city in South Australia. Nine Wyalas! around that lake in such a short and small area. And there they were packed, brethren and sisters. Hundreds and thousands of them. I will make you fishes of men. And on that shore was every conceivable nationality. They went from white through to black and every shade of grey was around that lake. And the disciples would have shuddered with the thought that out of that lake and around that lake the Lord was going to bring into the gospel net people who would manifest the qualities of the God of heaven. It would be unthinkable to those fishermen of Galilee that those people could respond, but many of them did. You just think about that lake. You know, it was a basin of commerce. Because of the very fact of its location, brethren and sisters, and because of the extraordinary geographical strata in the sense that it's laying in the, in the, around these mountains like a, like a basin in the earth, it grew every kind of fruit, and there was fruit ripe in the almost the whole of that year. So that from one day to the next, through the whole year in the basin of Galilee, some type of fruit was ripe, because of the extraordinary climate they had there. It has, of course, a busy fishing industry. The historians tell us that in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, that lake would have been studded with sails of fishermen out there on the lake. It is a very deep lake. The fish are plentiful. There was plenty for everyone. It was a basin of commerce. Every kind of fruit, the fish were there, brethren and sisters, and along with the fish, everything that went with fish. Boat making, net making, tanning, dyeing. And down here at the base, in the city down here, which is lost in history, the name of it does not reappear on any modern maps, there was a city down there which was world famous for the way it sent fish all over the world, cured fish. And the cured fish from Galilee was sought by people in the confines of the world because of the quality of that fish. Such was the commerce of that cauldron. And in that cauldron, brethren and sisters, as I said, 
moved every conceivable type of person. And the chief among them would be, of course, the Greek artisans. The upper echelon of Greek society lived there. They still left their mark in Galilee. The mark of those Greeks is still there. As they left the mark of the artisan there. And it still lingers in certain places around Galilee. And they would have seen the polished Greek. They would have seen the Roman, the, the, the Roman citizen, the Roman soldier, the Roman diplomat. They were all there. All the Romans were there. There was at Capernaum, brethren and sisters, a tax house. Who's, who, who was the officer there? Matthew himself. The very Levi, the, the, whose name was, his name was called Levi, and later on, of course, we know him was Matthew, the tax gatherer. He was at Capernaum. Why? Because that was right as straddled the Biomarist. They collected the toll right there. Matthew would have been sitting, brethren and sisters, by the way of the sea. And of all the gospel writers to make that point, he made it because he was sitting astride that highway. He would have seen the, the mass of humanity pass by him and he would have collected his toll in every kind of coinage you could imagine. And the Lord went and feasted with him and called him to the gospel message. And he would have seen the Greek artisan, the great society of the Greeks. He would have seen the brutality of the Roman soldier. He would have seen the expertise of the, of the Roman diplomat. He would see two brothers and sisters, the fawning Phoenician traders, ever there to make a fast dollar, whatever they called it in those days. Always there with their wares. The streets would have been filled with the tinsel of Phoenicia. And they would have been mingling with the Arabian merchants, with all their exotic wares, spread out in the streets. And amongst all of that, Jews whose very language had taken upon itself such a twang that it had become such an accent that it was unique in the world because it was, a, it was born and bred of every type and breath. So that they couldn't speak anywhere. They weren't known as Galilee. They were all in that lake. And you imagine the architecture. As one writer describes it, how did that lake at times, when it was very seldom like this, when it was calm in the morning, when the sun peeped over the hills of Gilead, was a golden orb and shone across that lake, brothers and sisters, mirrored in that lake would have been every type of architecture. There would be the villas of the Greeks, their holiday homes, beautifully colonnaded, festooned with the ivory and the vine, and with their balconies overlooking that lake. There would be the more noble and the more prominent buildings of the Romans, the administration buildings. Dotted around that lake would be Jewish synagogues. But then there'd be fish curing factories, wharves, jetties, dying places, all places of industry, all around that lake. And they just thronged the place. And there they were. The people that walked in darkness had seen a great light. And when our Lord moved to Capernaum, that tax gatherer, sitting on the Viamarist, the way of the sea, said, this is it. And he saw him walk there, brethren and sisters, with a deliberate stride. The Jews had rejected him. They didn't want him in his own hometown. And in the very terms of their own misunderstanding of the Day of Atonement, the great Jewish national sacrifice, they turned their back on him and tried to do away with him like they did away with the scapegoat. And he walked away from them and walked into a new world, into a world that they scorned, into a world, brethren and sisters, that was disgraced, a world that sat in darkness, that were full of notoriety, that people hated, a world that throbbed with industry, was full of corruptness, full of immorality, full of anything, anything was good, and the people that walked in darkness saw a great light, and you know, when I went through that for this week and thought about that, I thought, what a remarkable thing. But what a remarkable man who could spend so much of his time in an area like that when I dare say, brethren and sisters, and this thought passed through my mind, I thought, you know, most of the Valencians would probably feel far more at home in Judea. 
insulated and isolated. Walking in our own way and quite content do what we're doing and let the rest of the world go by. But into that city of Capernaum our Lord came. You know, brothers and sisters, I thought about how I could summarise this. I didn't have to think very long because I remembered a verse which summarises it all. You know, in the third chapter of Mark, you've got a little word picture here. A word picture which captures all the spirit of what Galilee's about. You read these words in verse 7. The Lord was again in the region of Capernaum. But in verse 7 of Mark 3 it says, But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. You just picture that scene, brothers and sisters. Try in your mind's eye to see that lake. And somewhere up here, in the northwestern corner, is our Lord. And you know, when he commenced, and we will see it in our next class, when he came to Capernaum, there was a frenzy of activity. It was like as if you went to a great anthill and stirred it up and watched the ants come speeding out of their holes and cover the face of the ground. It was just like that. He came into Capernaum and he healed people one after the other. And there's a, a rapidity of miracles there that it's almost without parallel in the gospel records. As if he walked into Capernaum, brought these people around him and went whoop, whoop, whoop and healed them one after the other. And there was an air hill and it erupted. And our Lord was on these occasions crossing the shore of the lake. He gets in the boat and goes into that lake away from the crowd. And there they come. And they came from Jerusalem. They came from... Let's put this other map up. I'll show you where they come from. The record says they came from down here in Jerusalem. Here, they came from around about Jordan, over this region. They came from Intermere. They came from Galilee. They came from Tyre and Phoenicia. They came from everywhere. And they all came to that lake. And he went out in the sea and there he was. And if you could have been looking down, if there were such things in those days as aeroplanes, you could have been looking down, you would see a microcosm of what Galilee was all about. It was like a madman that brought everyone there. And they'd all come there for different reasons. Some came there because they were patriotic and because they refused to give way to the Gentiles who thronged that district. Some came there because of health reasons. There was Roman bars at Tiberias, which, by the way, brethren and sisters, was in the course of building while our Lord was there. They just finished it just after his own ministry. He would have watched that being built. Where they had these hot sulfur springs and people come from all over the world to be cured, so-called, in the spring waters, the hot sulfur springs of Tiberias. So there were people seeking their help. Others came because of the beauty of the district, to paint it, to write poetry about it, to sing about it. Others came for the mere commerce of it. Because there you can sell anything to anyone. Others came because of the agriculture. Fishermen from that lake. They were all there for different reasons. Nobody was there to come to worship God. Some thought they did. But nobody really did. But when our Lord came there, brethren and sisters, and walked into that district, the people who walked in all sorts of darkness, under the stigma of a history which made that place dirty, saw a light such as other people had never seen. And Galilee, which had been formerly afflicted in the latter times, was honoured by the presence of our Lord 
and looking out of that lake and seeing that little boat with our Lord sitting in it and on the shore, throngs of people from all over almost the then known world. There's the story of Galilee. And there's the story, brethren and sisters, of our Lord's life. And I would hope that that little geography lesson and history lesson tonight might help us when we come back together and we consider our Lord's work in that remarkable region. And I'd like you to go home and think about it. And I'd like you to ponder it like I pondered it. And think about all that I've said. Read up a bit about it yourself. Get that in your own mind, the picture of that, as it existed in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not like it is today, but as it was then. And then you think about the calibre of the man who could sustain a campaign day after day after day in an area like that. You know, brothers and sisters, life's pretty busy for us. It's pretty hectic. The pressures of life are pretty great. And every now and then we've got to have a holiday. And our preaching, brothers and sisters, is spasmodic, to say the least. When you think about that district, you think about that man. You know what he did? We'll see this in Galilee. The only holiday he ever got, and we only we use that word, of course, advisedly, because it really doesn't apply. But the only break our Lord ever got was to get up in the morning long before any of those Galileans rose. And when Galilee was quiet, to go out on the slopes of those hills of Galilee, or wherever he might have been, and to seek his heavenly Father in prayer. And you know, brethren and sisters, they were the only quiet moments Galilee ever heard of, when people were asleep. And on several occasions, it's recorded of our Lord, that in that region, he had to get up before the break of day to find a little bit of time to himself that he might recharge the spirit of his life, that he might draw upon that power from heaven to walk among those people as the great light. And a great light it was. Truly, brothers and sisters, he did afflict and bring into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter years, he made it glorious. And the people who did walk in darkness saw a great light. And those people who sat in the deep darkness of death, all of a sudden, like the sun coming on the eastern horizon above the hills of Gilead, light sprang up. And Gilead became illuminated. And if you can't see that, a parallel and a parable, as it were, of your own life, as we've come from this country here in Australia and other nationalities amongst us too, even Brian Reynolds, we've come from everywhere. And if we can't see that, brethren and sisters, as a parable of our own life, we're blind. And our Lord walks in our midst. He walks in the midst of all our brethren and sisters. He's in Fiji. In the midst of that crisis there, there are our coloured brethren and sisters, Indian and Fijian. Light sprung up for them. And they are united when the rest of the island is divided because the great light has shone upon them, brothers and sisters. He's in England. He's in New Zealand. He's in South Africa. He's ever on that lake. And drawing around him are all nations. Galilee of the nations.